I next met with Miss Molly Reed, and to begin, she presented a patient from her practice. This was a 44-year-old white male, non-smoker. His mother actually passed away from lung cancer when she was in her 40s. She was a heavy smoker, but he lost his mother when he was very young and therefore had a long aversion to smoking. He's an accountant, so he was planning his wedding, going about his ordinary life, and he developed a dry, hacky cough. Well, he lives in the southeast near Nashville, where we have atrocious allergies that are pretty notorious. It was spring, so he thought it was allergy season, just ignored it. It was tax season for him, wedding planning time. So he got married in May, went on his honeymoon for two weeks, and when he got back, his now wife finally convinced him to go for evaluation, as wives do, and he went and had a chest x-ray, which unfortunately showed a large left hilar mass. Further workup showed other areas concerning for metastatic disease. He underwent a biopsy, which was non-small cell lung cancer, and then several days later, we found out that he did have an ALK rearrangement. So he was initially started first line on crizotinib. He tolerated it well. Like a lot of patients on crizotinib, he initially had the visual disturbances, this phenomenon where they see kind of light changes going from light to dark in rooms and vice versa. It can be alarming to the patients. Fortunately, it's not harmful. This patient described it as psychedelic. So those did resolve with time, and he did well and tolerated crizotinib well and had a nice response. But about nine months in, he unfortunately did develop a seizure. And so at that time, he ended up in the emergency room, and a workup revealed brain metastases. And he had enough brain metastases to where he needed whole brain radiation. Obviously, at that point, too, he had true disease progression, so it was time to move on to another line of therapy. So he underwent whole brain radiation, and then he was started second line on electinib. And... Right when he started electinib, he did very well, but he actually started responding really soon. He had a great response. He had had some other systemic, mild systemic progression as well, not too much systemic progression. It was more in the brain. But of course, he, the brain meds were treated with the whole brain, but he had continued shrinkage even when he started electinib. So we feel that the electinib definitely has helped him continue to have benefit in the brain. It tends to have more brain benefit than um, a lot of other targeted therapies, especially crizotinib. So what's his current situation? Yeah, his current situation, he has minimal disease at this point. And he had large brain mets. He had some three-centimeter tumors. And at this point, they're pinpoint, and he's been on electinib going on three years. So he's gotten excellent brain protection from it and really just some pinpoint lesions that have been very stable. Now, he does still have some deficits just from having the whole brain radiation. He still manages to work full-time, but a somewhat modified schedule as an accountant. But overall, he's done very, very well, and he's tolerated the electinib very well. He's had some mild fatigue, but no major issues with constipation, swelling, and some of the other side effects. So he's basically had metastatic cancer of the lung now for four years and is walking around with fairly minimal disease feeling pretty good. He is. It's really, truly remarkable. I wish we could see this in all the patients. And what's happened in terms of his personal life? You mentioned that he's working, but what's going on? I guess he already was engaged at the time that he found out about this diagnosis. What's been going on between him and his wife during this time? Well, they've definitely had to, you know, change their life plans. 
given a situation, even though his cancer has been more manageable than most metastatic cancers, you know, I think when they were planning their wedding, you know, planning a life together, they planned on children and they've had to rethink that. And that's one other thing that when you have these young patients that you sometimes have with these, you know, mutated lung cancers that tend to occur in young non-smokers, you know, they do have to change their life plans. You know, we obviously do a good job educating the young female patients about contraception. But, you know, sometimes people forget to educate the male patients, but the same applies for them as well. So, you know, then they've had to rethink their long life plans. They instead have animals that they focus on and have really just focusing on enjoying their time together has been their priority. Did he talk to you about what happened when his mother died? He was young at that time, right? Right, he was. He was in his teens. So to lose a parent in your teens, and especially, you know, his mom was a heavy smoker. It was a lung cancer. You know, I think with that goes some, you know, he had some thought that, you know, maybe could have been prevented. So he was trying to live as healthy a lifestyle as possible so that he could live out his life and not experience the same situation. And lo and behold, at age 44, he gets slapped with lung cancer, a very different type. But I think it was really hard for him emotionally when he got the diagnosis because he had already lived through losing a parent to lung cancer. And he saw the same thing going for him. Of course, he didn't have children, but all of his life plans were completely uprooted at that point. So I want to go through a few of the sort of teaching points of this case and also hear a little bit about how you explain things to him. Because I'm always curious about, you know, how people try to get across some of these concepts to patient. Now, he's an accountant, so maybe he can understand things a little bit better, maybe say, than the average person. But I'm curious how you explain to him, you know, what kind of lung cancer he had. He has ALK rearranged lung cancer. How do you explain that to him? So for him, you know, he does have a higher degree of understanding, higher educational level than many patients, but it can still be very complex to explain that. You know, explain to him that the type of lung cancer he has isn't the typical lung cancer that a smoker gets. Everyone still, especially the layman, they all still correlate lung cancer with smoking and assume it just happens to smokers. And this particular gentleman had lost his mother, a heavy smoker, to lung cancer. So we explained to him that the type of lung cancer he has usually is not in smokers. It's a very small population. It oftentimes affects younger people. But that he has a genetic rearrangement that's driving his cancer. And so we now have targeted therapies available to block that and prevent his cancer from being able to divide and survive. So I'm also curious what you said to him when you started him on the two drugs that he's had up to this point, grisotinib and electinib. You mentioned a little bit about the visual disturbances that he had. But again, when you sit down with a patient or when you sat down with him to start the grisotinib, what are some of the things that you go over with patients? Right. Well, definitely the visual disturbances with the crizotinib. That's one of the top ones. We also talked to them about the importance of keeping their follow-up appointments because of the potential for liver toxicity. This particular gentleman did not experience any liver toxicity, 
but some patients certainly do. It's one of the things you worry about with crizotinib. And so talking to them about keeping their appointments, showing up for their appointments, and explaining why they need to have lab work checked, why they need to show up for these appointments is very, very important. Some patients can also get some GI toxicity from crizotinib, so we certainly talk to them about that. And then again, these ALK-rearranged lung cancers can occur in young patients that are still of childbearing age. And oftentimes, people forget to discuss that with patients. We're used to, in the cancer world, taking care of older patients oftentimes. And when you have these lung patients that are younger, it's easy to just skip over that. But it is a very important educational point for these young patients. What point are you talking about? Actually, just are you talking about the issue of you know conceiving a child while on this drug? Exactly. Really? I never exactly. thought about that. Do we know anything about whether that's safe or not? Well, it's not recommended. I don't, it's not been studied. I don't think anyone would want to study that, but it is not recommended for both males and females. Really? That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Hmm. What about quality of life? And I don't know how many people you've actually treated with crizotinib. These are not that common, but do most patients feel well on crizotinib? Patients feel great on crizotinib. And, you know, these patients with newly diagnosed lung cancer, they come in to see you. They think they're going to get chemotherapy. They think they're, you know, going to be knocked on their feet, lose their hair, unable to work, nauseated, vomiting, you know, kind of that whole picture of what a cancer patient has historically looked like. And so these targeted therapies, it really kind of changes the face of their treatment. Most of these patients feel really good and are able to continue with their normal activities, work, and do whatever they want to do for the most part. I think one of the key things that was keeping an eye on their brain when they're on crizotinib and really asking them about any developing neurological issues and remembering to order some routine imaging every now and then. It's hard to get insurance sometimes to pay for imaging of the brain if a patient's asymptomatic, but oftentimes you can manage to get one squeezed in there every six months or so with no insurance issues. What are some of the neurologic symptoms you specifically might talk to a patient about? Right. Well, this patient, obviously, when he developed brain meds, his was pretty dramatic, what you don't want with the seizures. But, you know, asking them if they've had any headaches. And then, of course, when they had the visual disturbances, which they can get from crizotinib, those typically happen early on and then resolve. So if you've had a patient on crizotinib a while and they start to develop other you know, visual disturbances, new visual disturbances, make sure there's been some imaging of the brain. Also some focal weaknesses, maybe some, you know, weakness on one side of the body, one extremity, that type of thing. Those are some telltale signs. Even some paresthesias or some numbness on the face, you know, kind of around the mouth area, that's kind of another sign that would make a red flag go off and think, "Uh uh-oh, we need to scan their head. We've been hearing about these visual things with crizotinib ever since it first came out. What do patients actually tell you? I've heard something about when they go from dark to light or something. What do they actually say? And what did he say? Yeah, well, this is the patient that used the term psychedelic. Yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> and so he said that when he would go from you know one extreme where it was dark to another extreme where it was light, it would almost be like yellow flashing lights that he would see. And then it would resolve. And he was anticipating it. We had educated him up front about it. So it wasn't quite as alarming. But if you forget to tell your patient, it can be really scary for them. And so does this just happen when you go from dark to light? Or is it with them all day long? What happens? It's mostly 
from what my patients have told me with changes in light. But, you know, some do experience it more than others. So what about electinib? So you're saying it doesn't cause the visual disturbances. Do you see anything with electinib? Electinib, people feel good. He's felt great on electinib. And most of my patients on electinib have felt great. A lot of them have fatigue. You know, and it's hard to know with any of these cancer drugs. Is it disease? This particular gentleman's had whole brain radiation. He's got a lot of other factors playing into it. But fatigue, some constipation, some swelling as well. Another thing to make sure to educate patients about that are going on electinib is the photosensitivity, especially in the summer months. Oftentimes we do forget to educate them about that. And then again, checking their liver function tests, making sure they're coming in for these toxicity checks and lab work is appropriate. But he's felt really well and done very well and still been able to work a modified schedule and travel and enjoy life while on electinib. So there are patients who develop brain mets where it's, you know, on both sides of the brain, you can't use stereotactic, you're going to have to use whole brain radiation, where in some situations, I know people actually use targeted therapy. In his situation, he was having a lot of symptoms, he had a seizure, etc. But in other patients where you say you pick it up on a scan, they have multiple mets, have you seen patients respond in the brain to targeted therapy with, for example, lectinib or crizotinib? Not to crizotinib. Crizotinib just doesn't penetrate the brain as well as some of these newer generation ALK inhibitors. But we've definitely had some patients on electinib, even a newer generation ALK inhibitor, lorlatinib, with great responses in the brain without, you know, treatment, specifically radioactive therapy, to those brain meds. And we're going to talk in a second about EGFR tumor mutations, but as long as we're on this subject of targeted therapy, have you seen responses in the brain to EGFR TKIs like erlotinib or osimertinib? Not as much as we have with these newer generation ALK inhibitors just not to the same degree. Interesting. And I guess one of the things about whole brain radiation is that people try to avoid it because of this sort of side effects, particularly in patients like this, who this man's gone four years now. Have you seen any evidence that his thinking or you know neurologic function that you think maybe is related to the radiation therapy he had? With this patient, yes. He definitely has slower mentation after the whole brain. Like I said, he obviously has a high acuity job as an accountant, very detail-oriented. He's still working, but it's a modified schedule. And I think his employer has been very helpful in helping them find ways that they can utilize him. But he does not have the same mentation that he did prior. Yeah, when I saw uh, accountant whole brain radiation, I was immediately wondering, you know, how that went. What about, of course, when people have more localized disease, they often receive stereotactic radiation to the brain. Again, do you see neurologic problems, cognitive problems with that? Not nearly to the same degree. Stereotactic, it's actually what we prefer nine times out of 10 if possible. Now with this gentleman, unfortunately, he had brain mets to the extent that they were not amenable to stereotactic. But if a patient, if stereotactic is appropriate, it's absolutely what we prefer. We see far less detrimental, I guess, side effects from stereotactic compared to whole brain. Maybe we could talk about your 75-year-old man. Yeah. So 
This is a 75-year-old gentleman, former smoker, former heavy smoker, 75-plus pack year history, and he developed dyspnea, worsening fatigue, and had an abnormal chest x-ray when he presented for evaluation. His workup did reveal widespread disease. He was stage four at diagnosis. And he underwent a bronchoscopy with biopsy, which did reveal a squamous cell carcinoma. So he was started initially on palliative chemotherapy with NAB, paclitaxel, and carboplatin. And then eventually he transitioned to NAB, paclitaxel maintenance therapy. And he, as a lot of patients develop on napatilotaxel, he did get the neuropathy and did have the issues with the cytopenias. So let's just kind of backtrack through the history up to this point. So he presented with metastatic squamous cancer. And we know kind of generally non-small cell people see as squamous and non-squamous, which is usually adenocarcinoma. So he had the squamous, which is a lot more common in smokers and he got a carboplatin doublet, which is typically what happens with squamous cell cancer. And what we've seen is that people either use a taxane, either typically nabpaclitaxel or paclitaxel, but also in some cases, gemcitabine. How do you all approach that? And from your point of view, when you think about those three regimens, how do you compare what it's like for the patient to go through those three? Right. It depends on the patient, and you also have to look at their comorbidities. If you've got someone that's diabetic, that's already going to be predisposed to neuropathy, you're going to want to avoid a drug that's going to cause more neuropathy. Also, looking at the schedule for the patient, how often are they able to come to the clinic? How often are they able to come for follow-up? That's another key factor to keep in mind as well. And you elected to use nabpaclitaxel as the partner with carboplatinum. What was your thinking in choosing that? And in general, you know, in what kind of situations do you use this specific doublet? This was actually given at an outside clinic. He got this before he oh, came to us. Right. Yes. So, so, and you mentioned the fact that he had neuropathy. What specific symptoms did he have? Yeah, it was numbness and tingling on his fingertips, and it usually doesn't start after the first or second dose. Typically, on the napaclitaxel, it's a gradual onset. It's not to the same degree as paclitaxel, typically. It's not nearly as profound, usually, but over time, it gets worse, and you just start to notice, you know, gradual changes in the patient. At first, they oftentimes report, you know, sandpaper feeling on their fingertips and toes, and, you know, you have to keep inquiring about it, but then eventually, if you don't, it can get to where you find out that the patient can't button buttons, you know, you see them sign their name with a pen, and they can barely do that. And so talking to the patient about it and intervening early is so, so important. But again, this is something that can be underreported by patients that don't want you to stop therapy, especially if they see that it's working and responding. You mentioned the fact that, you know, particularly in people with diabetes, that it's helpful to use NAB because you don't have to use corticosteroids. Do you see problems with corticosteroids when you use them? For example, to present with paclitaxel, any sort of, you know, do you see corticosteroid type syndromes or is it, you know, not enough to cause that? 
Usually not. It's not enough for the most part to cause it. There are a few patients that maybe don't sleep that night. If you give them, you know, a bag of dexamethasone is a pretty hefty dose. And so there are some patients that maybe have some insomnia that night. But very few times do patients have ongoing issues with the corticosteroids if they're not diabetic. So I see that this patient got a CHECK1 inhibitor and nivolumab. Uh, I guess it didn't work because it only got it for a few months. What happened at that point? So at that point, he came for a clinical trial. And so we were able to get him on a trial third line at our institution, which was nesitumumab an EGFR-type drug, in combination with a study drug, another study drug, which was an mTOR PI3 kinase inhibitor. And so it was an interesting combination because what we worry about from the nesitumumab, one of the bigger issues is skin toxicity from this, that kind of EGFR-type of rash. And then PI3 kinase mTOR inhibitors also can be associated with rash. However, they're different types of rashes. The PI3 kinase mTOR rash tends to be a more maculopapular, blotchy type of rash and not that kind of spotty, acne type of rash. So he got the anti-EGFR antibody nesitumumab, which is actually approved now, although he got it as part of a clinical trial. And I'm curious because, you know, I guess there's been a lot more, say, cetuximab used for colorectal cancer when it comes to EGFR antibodies. But I'm curious about infusion reactions, and did he have any kind of, because, you know, you live, I guess, in the area that you see problems with cetuximab, but I don't know whether you see that with nesitumumab. We did not have any issues with the nesitumumab with infusion reactions. And yes, when we see an EGFR, IV EGFR drug ordered in our clinic, especially if it's a newer drug, everyone's hair stands up because we live in the belt where cetuximab reactions occur much more frequently than other parts of the country, and they occur with a vengeance. They're very severe. They happen early on, a few minutes into the chair, the patients can get an anaphylactic reaction. We have EpiPens sitting, you know, at the patient's bedside waiting to go when they're getting their first dose in this area. How did this man do? Now, he also received this other experimental drugs. I guess it's hard to tell what caused what, but how did he do with the nesitumumab? Well, he did develop a rash, and it looked more like an EGFR type of rash than the typical maculopapular rash from the study drug that he could have developed. And then he had some fatigue. Unfortunately, he didn't, in terms of his cancer, he did not have a very robust response. He did not stay on this trial for very long, but he did develop the EGFR rash. And I see that he ended up fairly soon after that in hospice care and then passed away. Can you talk a little bit about the discussions that you had with him as you shifted from active therapy into palliative hospice therapy? Right. That's, it's a hard discussion. It's a discussion no one wants to have. I've done this for almost 10 years, and it's still even hard to bring it up to patients. And at some point, though, patients are ready. And, you know, I think for this gentleman, he was relieved when we brought it up. Sometimes these patients just need permission from someone, be it a provider or a family member, that it's okay to focus on palliation and stop this. I mean, it gets exhausting. These patients spend their last days going to doctor's appointments. You know, in this patient's case, you know, driving to get to our clinic, which was, you know, out of ways for him. And at some point too, they start to decline. 
But I think the mental aspect is the biggest piece. It's really interesting because you'll have a patient that's declining physically, not doing well. They're not ready to give up treatment. Their performance status still is amenable to treatment, even though the patient doesn't feel good. And you keep going, going, going. And the patient just keeps going, going, going. And the minute you give them permission to go to palliation and that their family gives them permission to do it, they go on hospice care and it's, you know, some of them hang on, but a lot of them don't, you know, it's, and which is unfortunate in the whole hospice world because ideally you want patients to get into hospice early and receive that benefit. But I think for these patients, a lot of them just mentally decide it's time. And once they're ready, they're ready. So... So I want to finish out talking about checkpoint inhibitors and lung cancer. So I'm really interested in your 69-year-old man, heavy smoking history, retired optician, that's interesting, national park security officer, even more interesting, multiple comorbidities, wow. In any event, so he presents with an adenocarcinoma, uh, looks like he got chemotherapy, and then ended up on a checkpoint inhibitor, and I guess this was in May of 2016, so not quite a year ago, and he went actually on a trial and received nivolumab, the anti-PD-1 antibody. So can you talk a little bit about what his condition was when he started the nivolumab and kind of what happened? So this is actually one of my favorite cases. So this patient had large bulky disease when we got him on nivolumab. He had multiple tumors in the thoracic area, and some of these tumors were six centimeters, very large disease. At this point, we were looking for a fourth-line therapy, so we started him on nivolumab when it was still in a clinical trial, fourth-line. So what you worry about with nivolumab is that it can take time to work. These immune checkpoint inhibitors don't necessarily go in and melt the tumors in several days like a chemotherapy is capable of doing. The whole process of, you know, upregulating the immune system does take a little bit longer. But at this point, we didn't have many more options for this gentleman. And testing for pdl one was not required for this trial, as it's not for nivolumab second line or later. And so we enrolled him in the clinical trial. And he was symptomatic with his disease. At that point, he was working a little bit, but he was already retired. He worked more in the national parks as a security officer just for something to do more than anything. So he had cut back on work because he was definitely symptomatic. So he started nivolumab, and we scanned him. He started in May of 2014. And it's interesting, if I'm thinking about this, so this was like about a year before it was approved. Yes, exactly. So, you know, really, you mentioned the fact you have so many trials available to your patient. He's a pretty good example where somebody can benefit because he got a drug that was not approved in 2014. Absolutely. And he was someone with multiple comorbidities, too. So a lot of people would have looked at him as, you know, maybe a borderline clinical trial candidate and so on and so forth with his significant cardiac history and 
diabetes and all of the other medical issues that he had. But he started nivolumab in May 2014, and he had his initial scans about, on this particular trial, I believe it was eight to nine weeks into therapy, which is a little bit early for an immune therapy to really be looking for a response. But he was an early responder. He had a significant reduction in his tumor burden, even on that first set of scans. And he did beautifully. Very few side effects. And of course, the side effects that can happen from nivolumab oftentimes are delayed side effects. But he was a very early responder. We don't anticipate seeing this degree of response in every single patient that we put on immunotherapy. About one year into treatment with nivolumab, he obtained complete remission. That's definitely very, I guess we have to point out, I mean, I think only 20% of people even respond to start with. So he is an unusual patient. But again, it's understandable why you want to talk about somebody like this. How did he feel as he was getting treated? And how did he feel when he started treatment? And how did the treatment affect the way he felt? Right. So when he started treatment, his disease was symptomatic. Like I said, he had a very large disease burden in his chest, very large tumors up to six centimeters in size. He was symptomatic. He had pretty severe dyspnea. He wasn't on oxygen, but a bad cough. He wasn't able to work full time and do the degree of walking that was required for his work at a national park. And so he had really kind of cut back on life for the most part. And he was frustrated because with his cardiac history, he was gaining weight because he couldn't be as active and he was trying to keep an eye on that. But once he started therapy, his symptoms were improving as well. And we were suspecting that he was responding early on because he was saying that he felt so much better. His breathing was better. His cough had significantly improved. And he did early on develop, or a few months into therapy, develop that phenomenon where he can get hyperthyroid initially, and then they later on become hypothyroid. But he was asymptomatic the entire time. And so we just kept on treating him and didn't have to interrupt therapy at all. So you just picked this up in his blood work? Yeah. So, of course, this was a trial, so it was checked regularly. But even in clinical practice now with nivolumab, we need to watch the thyroid closely, check it at baseline. You don't have to check it before every single treatment, but every few months while they're on therapy. And what you see is they can develop this autoimmune thyroiditis, where initially the thyroid becomes inflamed. It's spilling out T3, T4. And so they get this hyperthyroidism, where the TSH gets very low because the pituitary gland says, you know, we don't need any more right now. Most of the time, these patients are very asymptomatic. It's something you pick up on blood work when they're hyperthyroid, and we just keep on treating. And lo and behold, if you just wait it out a few months later, you'll see that TSH shoot up and their free T4 levels will decline. And at that point, you can start titrating Synthroid. And again, unless the patient is symptomatic, which they rarely are if you're checking the blood work as you should, you can go on and treat them. And this is something that you, like I said, don't need to interrupt therapy for. You don't need to give steroids for this immune side effect if they're asymptomatic. So he goes into complete remission, which is really amazing. What's his current situation? Yeah, so we treated him after he obtained a complete remission. We treated him for another year. And interestingly enough, as I mentioned already, this patient has a significant cardiac history. And he was following up routinely with his cardiologist and was found to have a slight blockage in a vessel. And his cardiologist calls us wondering, should I even do anything? This guy's got metastatic lung cancer, stage four. I don't think I'm going to do anything about it. You know, I think his lung cancer is going to get him before this well. And we were telling him no do the procedure. I mean, we 
we're reluctant to ever use the cure word still. But I mean, he's had a very durable response and we don't know how long it's going to last. And this patient actually opted. He wanted to stop treatment after two years. He had had stable disease for a year. He was up to six miles a day walking as his job as a security officer in the National Park. He felt great. And he was traveling to come get this drug. At that point, we told him it's FDA approved. You can get it locally. But he just said, I'd rather watch and see what happens. I can restart it if I need to. I think now he has utmost faith in us. And so he's done really well. And we've continued to follow him with routine imaging at three-month intervals. And he has maintained a complete remission. Wow. So how long has he been off therapy? He's been off therapy about six to nine months at this point. And he had the cardiac procedure? He did. He did undergo the cardiac procedure and recovered beautifully. It went through cardiac rehab and has done quite well. So I'm starting to understand why he's your favorite patient. (laughs) But I mean, what's it like for you, for you to watch this, to be part of it? I mean, obviously it doesn't happen every day, but what an amazing experience. It really, I mean, I think I cry just as much as the patients do because so many times in the job and the role that I have, I'm giving bad news. And so when I actually get to go in there and tell someone, you know, this wonderful news and then get to tell them over and over, you know, it's just as life changing for me. And especially with lung cancer, where it's had such a dismal history for so many of the patients to see someone like this with huge bulky disease obtain a complete remission and as of now a very durable remission and be able to continue about his life and enjoy his retirement. How do you see him as a human being having gone through this experience? Do you see him any different? You know, he's focused on health more, for sure. You know, it's really important for him to make sure he's doing his exercise, following up with us, eating healthy. He's trying to manage his weight, really manage all of his comorbidities. He's also taken up new hobbies. He's decided he wants to paint. He actually painted me a painting as a thank you. He painted Um, a painting? What is it? He actually made me a painting. He's taken up painting as a hobby. So he gave and you one of his works of art. Exactly. What was it of? Thank you. It was of the mountains in East Tennessee. Wow. And he was really talented. And so he's definitely enjoying his, I would say, second chance, but with his cardiac history and some of his other comorbidities that may be beyond his second chance at life. But he's really enjoying life and focusing on making the best of what he has left. He has a spouse and family? He does. And his wife rarely comes with him. I think this gentleman, you know, he has to drive several hours to come to us, and he insists on still coming to see us every three months. We've offered to, you know, make it easier. But he does. His spouse, you know, rarely comes. Honestly, I think it's because it's almost his way of protecting his family from this. He wants you know them to think he's got this, and maybe for them not to know. I see this with patients. They kind of want to protect their family and not let their family know how grave the situation is at times. And so when family members start showing up, when patients have always come by themselves, sometimes that's a sign that we're in trouble somewhat. So I want to finish out and just get a few thoughts from you in terms of complications with checkpoint inhibitors. You mentioned the thyroid issue that this patient have, and you had another patient here 
with pneumonitis. And rather than go through that case, I am specifically interested in your experience with pneumonitis. I mean, these patients, a lot of them have chronic lung disease, they have tumor in the lung, and I'm kind of curious what happens when they get pneumonitis and how you figure out whether it's related to the drug or related to their COPD or cancer. Right. Pneumonitis is complicated, and I would say it's one of the most complicated immune side effects to manage, especially in this lung population. And so what happens is the patients will usually complain of worsening shortness of breath, cough. You always need to bring them in for evaluation. You know, a nurse that takes that phone call should not ignore that and say, well, you have lung cancer. Or say, well, let me get you an antibiotic. Let me find someone to write you an antibiotic. These patients need to come in for evaluation. And those symptoms do need to buy them a full workup for pneumonitis. Granted, pneumonitis the percentage of patients that are going to develop pneumonitis, especially from a single-agent checkpoint inhibitor, is very low. These patients are more likely to have pneumonia, COPD exacerbation, disease progression, a pulmonary embolus. All of those scenarios are much more likely than pneumonitis. But you have to keep this in your list of differentials and work them up appropriately. So one key component to the workup is getting a good O2SAT. And I see this done oftentimes where O2SATs are not checked routinely on patients in certain clinics. And what happens is we have a lot of smokers here with COPD. Their baseline O2SAT may be 8890. So when your patient comes in on a checkpoint inhibitor complaining of dyspnea, cough, you know, you bring them in, you get an O2SAT. If you don't have something to compare it to, you're not going to know if it changed. So that is one thing that I'm constantly harping on. Make sure we get O2SATs on these patients, especially the lung patients. But they also need to, with these symptoms, that needs to buy them some imaging. Ideally, a non-contrasted CT, but in the age of insurance and time and pre-certifications and peer-to-peer reviews and everything else that can go into that and getting a CT scheduled, at least a chest X-ray. And differentiating drug-induced pneumonitis from these other issues is very difficult. What you'll see oftentimes, though, is that if they do have pneumonitis, it oftentimes can be found more in the upper fields. It can be found anywhere in the lungs, whereas a true pneumonia oftentimes will be in the lower fields of the lung. Also, look at their white count. Is your patient febrile? Do they have a high white count? Are they coughing up colorful sputum? If they have that whole constellation of symptoms, then it's probably more of a pneumonia. But with the pneumonitis, oftentimes their white count's normal. They're afebrile. And what you'll see when you get imaging is infiltrates, oftentimes bilateral if it's severe enough. You'll see them, they'll develop hypoxia. And at that point, that's when treatment needs to be held and they need to start on high-dose steroids right away. And with pneumonitis, you do not want to underdose the steroids. That's probably one of the biggest mistakes that people made in treating pneumonitis is they will give them a medrol dose pack, which is not going to work. You've got to go with one to two mg per kg of prednisone or the equivalent per day. And if it's a pneumonitis, go high. You know, you can always taper down on the steroids, but go high and do a very slow taper. Because if you get them off the steroids too quickly, what's going to happen is the pneumonitis can rear its ugly head again, or you could even induce an adrenal insufficiency. What typically happens when you give the corticosteroids? Do the patients quickly get better? Not as much with pneumonitis. So with other immune side effects, 
like the colitis and the hepatitis, you'll quickly see, you know, recovery in those issues as soon as you introduce the steroids for the most part. But I find that the pneumonitis lingers longer. You have to have them typically on a slower steroid taper. And of course, what that means is you're going to get more side effects from the corticosteroids. You're going to see the patients get thrush. So I tell nurses, if they're complaining of taste changes, ask them to stick out their tongue because they're going to get thrush. They're going to get hyperglycemia. They're going to have insomnia, all those great side effects from steroids you're going to start seeing, especially in these pneumonitis patients because they're going to be on high dose taper for a longer period of time. Also, at our practice, we do order imaging again before we even consider restarting. You know, per PI guidelines, if they've got a grade three pneumonitis, which means they're dependent on oxygen, you know, per PI guidelines with these drugs, they're supposed to stop it. But, you know, if they've got a pneumonitis and it is appropriate to consider restarting them once it's resolved, we do order imaging before we do that to make sure it's better. And oftentimes you'll see improvement in their symptoms ahead of improvement in actual imaging.